there's one or two things I would like to say as we begin this second session is number one I'd like to thank Diane again for playing the piano for us being our pianist uh, our regular pianist uh, Janet has injured her leg and we're certainly praying for her recovery uh, understand it's going to be uh, several weeks but we're praying for her recovery and we're really pleased to have Diane and Wayne, Wayne Radio. Most of us in the congregation know Wayne Radio. He is the executive director for Child Evangelism Fellowship here in Northern Virginia. We've had a marvelous relationship with Wayne and Diane for, well, seven years now, I think. As uh, six years ago, going on seven, uh, we began uh, hosting and uh, uh, sponsoring good news clubs here in Northern Virginia, and uh, we are we actually uh, sponsor four good news clubs here. So, uh, for those of you who have heard of, of good news clubs or might be interested in helping us teach a Bible club in a public school, when I first heard that, I thought certainly that cannot be true. There's no such thing as a Bible uh, going into a public school. But as long as that public school has an after-school club, if they have after-school clubs, then Child Evangelism Fellowship has been given the authority by the Supreme Court to have an after-school club as well. And while that is probably one of the better-kept secrets, uh, we have, for the past six years, really enjoyed having uh, Good News Clubs in Patrick Henry, in Claremont, in Fort Belvoir, the elementary school at Fort Belvoir, and also at Old Bridge Elementary just this last year we started. So we, uh, uh, we're so thankful for those who serve in those Good News Clubs uh, in the congregation and those who support us in any way possible, even by prayer. So if you might be interested in participating, uh, there are many in the congregation whom you could see. Uh, I'm one of them. Another one would be uh, Debbie Daniluke. Another one would be Theron Houston, uh, Laura Fody, any one of the, the deacons as well. So we would uh, invite and enjoy your assistance. The other thing I wanted to say and I don't know if I can uh, say this without sounding really disappointed, but uh, but God's plan is uh, is proper, correct, and it's the best. And we are going to be missing one of our uh, one of our uh, Air Force officers who is receiving permit change of station orders. Actually, received them, and she's going to be executing them tomorrow, I understand. Justine Wopat will be uh, beginning her drive from uh, this area, the capital region, out to North Dakota. So she has been with us now, I think, for a little over a year, and it's been a very enjoyable time with her. But I, the reason I announced that is so if you'd like to say goodbye to her uh, as we depart today, this will be, hopefully you do have a means of contacting her because we like to stay in contact with those who have been part of our congregation, part of our family, as I like to say. So, Justine, we're really not saying goodbye. It'll just be maybe a lengthy time before we see you again, and we look forward to seeing you again just as soon as we can. 
So we wish you well. You and Aspen, her daughter, are driving towards uh, North Dakota, arriving there soon. So, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. And where I go you know, and the place you know. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We have a few seconds now for spiritual preparation. This is our opportunity for closing our eyes and bowing our heads. It's a time of personal examination, uh, understanding that if we have sin in our lives, then God the Holy Spirit's ministry is encumbered. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just <clears throat> to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And of course, this is done privately uh, within your own soul between you and God the Father. So let's take just a few seconds, closing our eyes, bowing our heads, and then I'll open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this church family. We're thankful that you have allowed this local body to meet here in the capital region. We pray, Father, for the impact that we would have in this nation. Uh, We are in desperate need of spiritual impact uh, for this nation. We pray, Father, for your blessing upon the service, upon Jim and the message that he will bring to us and also upon the communion service. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For our communion service, please open your Bibles to Luke. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. I simply want to point out really one verse. We're in Luke chapter 24. And many of us are familiar with the experience of two individuals walking on the road to Emmaus. This is in Luke 24. The experience for them begins in verse 13. As they were walking along, uh, suddenly these two individuals, two disciples were told, were joined by another individual. And they did not recognize who this was. It was a stranger to them. But we know that it was an appearance, a post-resurrection appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has just died on the cross. He was buried. And he rose again. And he has made several appearances to some of the disciples. And here are two that will have the opportunity to walk with him and talk with him. And we're told that he opened the scriptures to them and he spoke to them, beginning with Moses. And so we know that here is the Lord Jesus Christ talking to these two individuals. And what does he do? He begins with a summation of the word of God, beginning with what Moses taught. And so we know that the full um, text of Scripture is critical and important. But as he spoke to them, what impact did this information have on them? We're told in verse 32, 
And this is after their eyes were open, and they returned. Uh, excuse me, they had not yet returned to Jerusalem, but they will. In verse 32 it says, And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened the scripture to us? That's how we should respond to the word of God. Our hearts should burn. And I know that many of us have opened the Bible and maybe we've read in the Old Testament and it's hard to understand But we have to understand that this is, we have to realize that this is the mind of Christ. These are the thoughts that God would have us to read and to know. And while they are not being spoken by the Lord to us, they are being communicated to us. These are the, this is the mind of Christ, the words of Christ that are being communicated to us by God the Holy Spirit from the text of Scripture. And if we apply ourselves trying to understand why is Isaiah saying this, understanding the background, or why is Jeremiah, or why was Moses writing in the five books of the Bible that we believe he wrote, or other texts, there should be an impact in our souls. Our hearts should burn within us. But why? Why? Because this is our Savior. This is our risen Savior. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, that we are bought with a price. We are not ourselves. We do not belong to ourselves. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ... We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has bought us. His atoning work on the cross has redeemed us from the slave market of sin. And now we are His. And the verse which I quoted to begin our first session talks about, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any any man should boast. But subsequent to that, we know that we are His workmanship. Our salvation is not of works. But what God's plan is for us is that we are now His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What? The works that He has provided in this plan for us. And so we have been bought with a price and now God has a plan for our lives. And that that is to serve Him. And this morning as we come to our communion table, we have to remember this purchase price. The purchase price was the Father's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. And that should be at least a basis for the Word of God, the mind of Christ, burning in our hearts. These are the words that he would have us to hear, to learn, to apply. Why? Because he gave himself for us. His death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. So this morning as we come to the communion table, 
many of us in the congregation have done this many times, and we understand that the wafer, the bread that we have, represents the Lord Jesus Christ's body. Uh, the qualifications for going to the cross was that he was sinless. He was the unblemished lamb that represented him in the Old Testament. And so he is qualified to go to the cross. We often say that the, uh, the bread, this wafer, piece of cracker that we have, is unleavened, meaning that it is the leaven representing sin. There's no sin there. And so our Lord Jesus Christ's, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, as he goes to the cross, is qualified because he was sinless. He was sinlessly perfect. The only man to ever, um, experience that. And then, the cup. It has a red beverage in it, and the red beverage represents uh, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The red representing blood, and his blood representing his death. And it was in his spiritual death on the cross when he paid for our sins. When he paid the price, removed the guilt from us for these sins. And so we have these two elements that are part of the communion service. His sinless perfection as he goes to the cross and then his spiritual death on the cross as he pays for our sins. And we have the communion service and we take the elements, but sometimes they really are not that significant to us. But we have to realize that one of the ways, and one of the many ways we know that this was uh, truly an extraordinary and an excruciating experience for our Lord on the cross, is that the Father decided to conceal his experience on the cross by cloaking it in darkness. And so for those three hours, uh, our Lord's death, his experience on the cross, was cloaked in darkness so that uh, we would not be able to behold the experience that he was uh, that he was enduring for us, and so this morning, as we prepare for our communion service for the bread and the cup, and I'll ask the the two deacons to come forward to assist me. Uh, our only requirements, the only requirement is that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Uh, there's no requirement for you to be a member of the church. Um, there's no requirement for you to have uh, uh, passed any other qualifications. It's simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And then for it to be significant and meaningful, of course, you should examine your hearts to ensure that there are no unconfessed sins. So uh, we take just a few seconds as we begin to confess our sins. We've done this before the prayer or before our songs. But I give you another uh, few seconds for a reflection upon uh, what the service means and to ensure one more time that there are no unconfessed sins in your life. And so let's just close our eyes and bow our heads and I'll ask Mike after a few seconds if he would return thanks for the bread. Let's bow our heads. If you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3.
The Word of God is under attack today. Sometimes the attacks are overt, blatant, obvious. Sometimes they are not so obvious. And we need to be ever aware of what's going on. We should not take anything for granted. We should not assume that because we know who is speaking that he's always going to speak the truth. But that's not always the case. And sometimes we find that there are attacks being made upon the Word of God, sometimes by our friends, sometimes by people who ought to know better, uh, but who for one reason or another have taken a different track. So I would encourage you to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. They didn't trust the Apostle Paul. When they heard Paul speak, it says they went and opened their Bibles and studied and checked him out. We need to be doing the same thing today. What does the Word of God have to say? What I say, not important. What the Word of God says is very important. And so we need to validate what we are hearing with the Word of God. And this requires that we ourselves spend time in the Word. Now, attacks on the Word of God are not something new. How old are attacks on the Word of God? Well, they first began before there was any sin in the human race. The first attack on the Word of God came when there was no sin in mankind. And we see in Genesis chapter 3, it says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did God really say that? There we have an attack. He is trying to impugn God's character, God's motives. Did God really say that? Is that really Bible? Or maybe you just didn't understand it correctly. Or maybe God said one thing, but He didn't really mean that. And I'll tell you, we find a lot of that today in the attacks on the Word of God. They'll say, well, I know what you read in the Bible, but what you don't understand is what it says is not what God meant. And now they want you to discover some hidden meaning, some deeper meaning, a fuller meaning. Oh, there's a fancy theological term. I'll use it. I hope you don't hear it again, but you may. It's called census plenior. You know about census plenior? Good. But I want you to be aware of it. Maybe you'll run across it. Maybe you will hear it again. And when that happens, I want a little bell to go off in your head and say, wait a minute. Census plenior, it's a fancy word that just means, oh, a fuller meaning. Fuller. And what they say is the people in the Old Testament, the prophets, they wrote certain things and they didn't really know what they were writing. They didn't understand what they were writing. And when the New Testament writers came along, 
they now are going to give a completely different understanding to those words and they say this is the fuller meaning. And what they are essentially doing is saying you can't trust the Old Testament or you can't read it with any confidence because there is a hidden meaning there and that what God caused to be wrote written was not really what He meant. Did God really say you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, of course, God didn't tell them they couldn't touch it, but I understand why the woman would say that. Because if you don't touch it, you're not going to eat it, right? And so what what this is, it's like, okay, we have this tree and let's build a fence around it. And so, in this sense, she actually added to the Word of God. And I can understand the motivation for doing this, but we need to be careful when we begin adding to the Word of God because this in itself is a distortion. We need to obey what God has actually said. But then in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now this is a direct contradiction. This is just a an out and out lie because God had said in Genesis 2.17, in the day that you eat the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. And the serpent said, you will not surely die. Now that is a blatant attack. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's blatant. And sometimes the things are so blatant that we'll say, well, if it's said loudly enough and long enough over a period of time, must be true. And we get this every day. We get lies over and over again. And so what happens is after a while when we hear the truth, we begin to doubt that it's really true. We need to stand on the Word of God, which means, first of all, we have to know it, and then we have to be absolutely confident that God said what He meant, and He meant what He said, and I'm responsible for that. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what do you think the woman did after she heard that? She ran to the tree. Instead of saying, wait a minute, God says, don't eat that tree. She said, I'm going to check check it out. I'm going to go find out. So, in verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now she's sitting there and she's looking at the tree. She's contemplating this tree. You know, that fruit looks pretty good. Looks like it's good. This is what John is going to call the lust of the flesh in 1 John 2.16. And it was pleasant to the eyes. It must have been a very beautiful tree. This is what John calls the lust of the eyes in 1 John 2.16. And a tree desirable to make one wise. So now she's paying attention to what the serpent had said. You'll be like God. She's thinking, that's not a bad thing. I want to be like God. So she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
He watched the whole thing. And he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened. So now they have sinned. They have become sinners. And their relationship with God has changed. Now they are alienated from God. They did indeed die. They died instantly when they ate that fruit. Now, not physically. Adam lived 930 years, but now he is spiritually dead. Death always carries the connotation of separation. We understand this in physical death. The inner man, the immaterial part of man, is separated from the physical. But there are other kinds of death. Here we have spiritual death. Man is separated from God. And the only way that man can be brought back into a right relationship with God is through a spiritual birth. We have to be born again. We have to be born of the Spirit. We have to be born into the family of God. There's no way that you can work and become a member of someone's family. You have to be born into the family And this is because we are dead spiritually, separated from God. Now, man is separated from God, and he can't do anything about his spiritual condition. One who is spiritually dead cannot make himself spiritually alive. But God, in His marvelous grace, takes the initiative. Grace takes the initiative to provide for man what man cannot provide for himself, And so man hides himself. He covers up his sinful deed by making clothing out of fig leaves. Hides, but God comes looking for him. The Son of Man has come to seek the ones who are lost. He's looking for those who are lost. He has come to save those who are lost. I think many times we forget the seeking aspect. It's God's desire that all should come to repentance, that none should perish. So God comes looking for man, and He wants man, first of all, to acknowledge his rebellion, his sinfulness. And man does, and the woman does, but they both do so by blaming someone else. So in verse 12, The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. So he says, yeah, it was the woman, but ultimately he's blaming God. Well, God, you gave me the woman. If you hadn't given me the woman, why, I wouldn't have sinned. You see, ultimately it's God's fault. Well, God, it's your fault. I got drunk. I mean, you, you're the one that caused grapes to ferment. If you hadn't caused that, well, I wouldn't have gotten drunk, so it's your fault. We find all, all kinds of excuses. But he did acknowledge the fact that he sinned. He ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, oh, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Not my fault. You remember Flip Wilson? The devil made me do it. Well, it's as old as <laughs> the Garden of Eden. It was the serpent. It was the devil. He made me do it. I ate. So now they have both acknowledged their sinfulness. God now is going to turn to the serpent, but the serpent doesn't have anyone to blame. There's nowhere else to go. And so now God is going to begin to announce a curse that's going to affect all of creation. It's going to affect the entire universe. 
Verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now this is spoken to the serpent. The serpent is cursed, and he says more than all cattle, which means the cattle are cursed as well. All animal creation is cursed as part of this as will be the ground, as will be the plants, as will be all of creation, according to uh, Romans chapter 8. He says, On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now, when he says, On your belly you shall go, this does not mean that before this the snake had legs. I saw this horrible thing yesterday, some well-meaning Christian put on the internet, and they had something they said, here is a fossil of a snake with legs to prove that the book of Genesis is right. Well, I'm sorry, if they found a snake with legs, it means it had to be the very snake that talk to Eve, right? Because now <laughs> snakes don't have legs. So I, I'm sure the person that posted this was well-meaning, but I don't believe it. And when it says, on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust, now snakes do not eat dust. You understand that? They don't. This is figurative language. It's talking about that which is humiliation, that which is in subjection. It's it's an indication that now there is a curse because of something that was wrong. And so when we look at the snake today, we are reminded of what happened here in the garden. And it's not that there was necessarily some physical change in the serpent, but rather that now when we see this snake and when it crawls on the ground... It has been cursed because of its part in the fall. And we find crawling on the ground and we find eating dust as metaphors in the Old Testament and in other literature. And what does it mean? Here is somebody that is being humiliated. Here is somebody who is uh, under a curse, somebody who is being subjugated. Now, we have to recognize something else. Snakes don't talk. Okay, this is not like some chronicle of Narnia sort of thing where you've got these talking animals. That's not what this is. But what we have is a power, a force, an entity which is actually speaking through the literal snake. Now, we have this serpent and it was talking to the woman. All right, question. Can animals sin? Do animals sin? I mean, one animal goes out and eats another. Is that murder? One bird steals food from another. Is that theft? I mean, we don't arrest, arrest the birds. They don't sin. God has pronounced His creation very good. 
and the animals are not capable of moral decisions whereby they become sinful creatures. They don't. But God is now going to speak about the serpent. But he's not going to be talking about this literal snake, but rather the entity that was animating this snake. And we know from other passages that this actually is the devil. This is Satan. And so now in verse 15... Now, this is a verse, I will tell you, it is under attack today, even by some Christians, even by scholars. Now, this has long been called the Proto-Evangelium, fancy word that means the first good news, the first gospel. And this is the first announcement that God is going to do something to solve man's sin problem. And God is now going to speak to the serpent, but he's speaking to Satan, who is animating this serpent. And he says, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, there are people today who are denying that there is any messianic reference to this verse. And I'm talking about scholars from some of our better-known seminaries, and I'm not talking about liberal seminaries. I'm talking about evangelical seminaries where they would still subscribe to the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. But they're saying, this is not about Messiah. This is, this is about snakes and women. And women don't like snakes. I'll tell you, I don't like them either. Okay, so, uh, but they, people are saying, no, this is just about hostility between snakes and women. Well, there are some others who say, well, actually, it's, it's metaphorical. And it's just talking about the perpetual conflict between good and evil. I have a hard time with that too. Calling women good and snakes evil, somehow that doesn't seem to be an apt metaphor. But he says, there's going to be this hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Okay, seed is a tricky word in this sense. Seed, when we find it, is always in the singular. When we find this in Scripture, it's always in the singular. It doesn't say seeds, plural. It's seed. But the word seed can have a collective sense. It can be one seed. It can be a million, all referred to as seed. And this is something we find throughout Scripture, and you have to determine from the context, is this talking about one? Is this talking about a collection? Sometimes, uh, I think in some of your translations, you have the word offspring, which is the same thing. Offspring can be one, or it can be many. And what we find also is that the, the use between singular and plural often oscillates. 
in Scripture. Sometimes it's talking about one. Sometimes it's talking about the collection uh, where there would be many. And I think that's what we have here. There will be enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now, is it your seed, seed of the snake, one? Who would that be? Would that be a reference to Antichrist, if it's just one? Or who would it be? Who would be the seed of the serpent? Not talked about anywhere else. Except Jesus, when he talked to the Pharisees, he said, why, you sons of snakes, a brood of vipers, it literally means children, of snakes, I think that could be a reference here to the seed of the serpent. I think it's a collective sense here. Talking about those who are unbelievers, those who are antagonistic to the Word of God, and between her seed. Question, is this singular or is this collective? Much of the teaching is that this is singular and a specific reference to Messiah and People have gone to some length to show how this is a unique usage, that seed is a male property, doesn't belong to women, and therefore it must be a reference to a unique birth, uh, who is the Messiah. I don't have a problem with that, but I think that in this context he's, he's probably saying a collective sense here, that there's going to be conflict between those who are of their father, the devil, and those who are believers but be that as it may I think that there is going to be a shift in meaning as we look at the rest of the verse because it says he shall bruise your head I think this is definitely singular he one person doesn't say they when it talks about the seed here it's he not they he will bruise your head All right, let's look at this verse. He will bruise your head. When it says your head, who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? Look at your verse. Hey, he is here talking to the serpent. He is here talking to Satan in the serpent. He is not talking about the seed of the serpent. He's not saying that he, the seed of the woman, is going to bruise their heads. No, yours. So, I think this is a reference very definitely to Messiah, God's promised deliverer. And what is he going to do? It says he will bruise or crush your head. You may have a different word here, but the idea is one of uh, attack, crushing. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, whatever word you have in your translation, it's going to be the same word repeated. He will crush your head, you will crush his heel, or bruise. Whatever your word is. Same word. And in the Hebrew text, it's exactly the same word. It's repeated. Now, some have said, well, the blow to the head is fatal. You stomp on the head of the snake and you destroy the snake. But 
the bruise to the heel is non-fatal. I don't think so. I think we have here a venomous snake, and when it bites, it's going to kill. It's going to bring death. I think it's a fatal blow in both instances. And what he's saying here is that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of Satan. Fatal blow. But in doing so, the serpent, Satan here, is going to inflict a fatal blow on the seed of the woman. Death of Jesus Christ on the cross. God is going to do something to solve the sin problem. This is the first announcement of it. This is Messiah. And when we read the rest of the Pentateuch written by Moses, we see how he develops the one that God promised who ultimately is going to destroy Satan. Very important. Now, this verse is under attack today. But this is the basis for our salvation. This is the basis for the good news that's going to be developed throughout the rest of the book of Genesis and on through the Pentateuch, particularly when we get to Numbers and Deuteronomy, prophecies about the one that God will send who's going to provide deliverance from the sin problem. And then... God gives a beautiful illustration of how he's going to do that because it says well it's uh, he pronounces then the curse on man and the woman. And he says, Adam, you're going to die. In verse 19, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, to dust you will return. Announcement of physical death that is going to be the consequence of sin. The wage of sin is not physical death. We know that. Why? Because when I believe in Jesus Christ, okay, that penalty is removed, but I'm going to die. I'm going to die physically. So we know that the wages of sin is not physical death. It's a consequence of the fact that I am under a curse. And we are living in a cursed world. And that curse is not going to be removed until Jesus Christ comes. And when Jesus Christ returns and sets up His kingdom on the earth, then people can live for a thousand years. But the wages of sin is that spiritual death. But he here announces that man is going to die physically. You're going to return to the dust from which you were made. And then Adam does an amazing thing. You know what he does right after God says, you're going to die physically. You're going to go back into the ground. Verse 20, And Adam called his wife's name Life. Eve. Life. An amazing thing. God says, you're going to die. Adam turned to his wife and says, I'm going to call you life. You're the mother of all living. 
he understood the promise that was made in verse 15 that God was going to do something about their sinful condition, about their spiritual death. And in verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Where do you get skin? You kill an animal. Now God could have said, let there be skin. He didn't do that. He could have just said, let there be clothing. He didn't do that. He made them tunics out of skin. And I believe that here, God, for the first time, is going to show them what physical death looks like. An animal is going to die. A sheep, goat, cut the throat, skin the animal, tan the hide, make a pattern, make clothing. And this is a picture of the sinless substitute, one who dies in the place of the guilty. And God is going to show His provision now to cover man's sinful condition until the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world would come and die on the cross so that we could be clothed in His righteousness. And so God has done something about our sinful condition. But we have God's revelation in the Word of God. People want to deny the validity of Genesis, particularly the first 11 chapters. They take away our salvation when they do that. This is the whole foundation. This is the one that God promised. And we know that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of these promises. And so we can have life even though we are born spiritually dead. We can have eternal life, God's life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I give thanks, Heavenly Father, that we have your word in writing. We can each have our own copy. What a blessing that is. And we have it in our own language so that we can read it. I thank you that you have given us revelation of everything that's necessary for us to know in this life to have right relationship with you and how to live in a manner that's going to be pleasing to you. And we can have absolute confidence in this word because it's perfect. It's without error. Now I just pray that we will grow in our confidence in your word, that we will be persuaded of its veracity, and that we will recognize that we're responsible to obey what you have written to us. So I pray that your Holy Spirit will give us understanding with regard to these things, that we might grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might be doers of the word and not hearers only, so that we might fulfill your purpose and bring you glory. And I would ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.